Today's episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by Miller Lite. Look, here on The Ringer, we have our disagreements, but there shouldn't be any debate about this. Miller Lite is the great tasting light beer. With only 96 calories and 3.2 grams of carbs, that's fewer calories and half the carbs of Bud Light, so there's really nothing more to talk about. If you have a real argument, let me hear it. Until then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite, hold true. Bienvenue to the Monde au Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. As always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself part of the larger Ringer media empire, including the Ringer.com, where you can find stories of all shapes and sizes. And this past week, I'm particularly fond of Kevin Clark's story on my lord and savior, Doug Peterson, and Lindsey Gibbs' profile of WNBA star Liz Cambage. So you should check both of those stories out, and you'll probably run into more stuff that you like, so I encourage you to visit TheRinger.com. But you didn't come here to listen to me read off what great stories we have. You came here to listen to Zach Cram talk about the St. Louis Cardinals. So without any further delay, let's do that. So this segment is born out of... uh, discovering that the St. Louis Cardinals had edged closer to a playoff position. They were actually in playoff position over the weekend. Uh, They are in playoff position now. They're in a three-way tie for the second wildcard spot. And when I discovered this, I went, huh? Uh, Because they were supposed to be out of it. They fired their manager. And here to explain how all that happened is uh, Ringer baseball expert and one-time St. Louis resident, Zach Cram. Hello. What's going on? They've got tied for the best record in the National League over the past 10 games. They have been raised from the dead. How is this happening? Well, since they fired their manager, they have the best record in the National League. Uh, So that helps. But I I don't think this is entirely up to Mike Matheny being replaced. I think this is as cliche as it might sound, kind of a typical Cardinals team in that they're relying on a lot of performances from guys most people hadn't heard of before the season heading into the year their rotation seemed like a strength. It was solidified with a lot of either capable veterans or players who are younger, but with a lot of promise with Carlos Martinez and Michael Waka and Adam Wainwright. Guys you knew and heard of, Alex Reyes was supposed to come back from injury. Well, Reyes has pitched exactly one game before being shelved for the year, and Martinez, Waka, and Wainwright are all on the disabled list right now. But they're relying on guys like John Gant and Austin Gomber and... Miles Mykolas, who's back from pitching in Japan and has been excellent this year. I wrote about him earlier Your this man, season. Miles Mykolas, yeah. Yeah, and it's basically a Cardinals team. I know we'll talk about Harrison Bader in a second, who's sort of doing the same thing on the offensive side. But as much as the Cardinals have a reputation for calling up guys who certainly exceed expectations based on where they were ranked as prospects, for instance, this is sort of the peak of that. Uh even like Jack Flaherty, who has been maybe their best pitcher this year other than Michaelis, he was touted high, more highly as a prospect. He was in top 100 lists, but even he has probably exceeded expectations in his rookie year. So it's full of surprise performances, and that's what made this recent run, I guess, surprising, but also probably more fun. Yeah, it's They strike me as a very balanced team, uh, apart from Matt Carpenter, and you know, we'll talk about Bader's uh, stats. There isn't really. I don't even want to call Carpenter an MVP candidate. Like he might. He's leading the National League in home runs, but it's. There's no Bryce Harper carrying this team to to the playoffs. It's just you just look up and down this lineup, and everybody, including guys who you thought might be washed, like Jet Jerko or 
uh, or Marcelo Zuna, who looks uh, the numbers are under are uh, underwhelming, but like he's been almost a league average hitter. There just aren't that many weaknesses in this lineup. And if you're relying, I mean, we've seen this in numerous places up and down the um, up and down the National League pennant race that if your one star is carrying you and he goes into a slump, then you're screwed. And the the Cardinals just by the way they develop, like their developmental success is they don't really turn into superstars. They just turn into good players and they produce a lot of them. And, uh, you know, Bader's an example of that. And we don't have to get to him uh, right away, but they've just developed a like they're an above average team because everybody on their team is an above average player, pretty much, or an average to above average player. And that gives them the depth we're talking about. I will say that the Cardinals recent run, I wasn't putting that much stock in it because their winning streak started with wins over the Marlins and the Royals and the Nationals and like even the Marlins are beating the Nationals these days. So none of those series victories were all that impressive. But then against Milwaukee over the weekend, they won two out of three against one of their direct wildcard threats. Last night, they hit two home runs off Kenley Jansen in his first game back from the disabled list to steal a game from the Dodgers in the ninth inning. So they're starting to beat good teams now, which they will continue to need to do. They have one of the most difficult remaining schedules the rest of the way with a road trip they're currently on against the Dodgers and then the Rockies. Then in September, at least in the back half, basically every single team they play is a playoff contender. So they'll certainly be a team I'm watching the rest of the way, both because all of their games matter and just as you're saying, like they have a lot of interesting players who we haven't necessarily watched much before. And it's fun to see those players make an impact in the pennant race. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's nothing to be ashamed of in beating up on bad teams. Like those wins count just as much as wins against first place teams. I guess once you uh, take out the effect of of causing a direct competitor like the uh, like the Brewers to fall in the standings, but you know, you've seen the Phillies. If they miss the playoffs, they're going to miss the playoffs because they struggle against the Mets while everybody else beat up on the Mets and you know stuff like that. So, it, it, particularly in the state the Cardinals were when Mike Schill took over, um, they're twenty two and eleven under him right now. You got to take advantage of those opportunities where you can. And even getting two home runs off Kenley Jansen sounds impressive, but you look at those pitches like, uh, you know, 92, a, not a ton of movement. The one that Carpenter hit out was just dead center belt high. Like you'd expect uh, pretty much any competent big leaguer to, to hit that out. That was not Pete Kenley Jansen that, that they hit uh, those home runs off of. And, you know, just taking advantage of those opportunities um, could very well be the difference for them. I do want to appreciate Carpenter, who you mentioned briefly, and who I think if the yeah, Cardinals... He's one, he and Bader are the two guys that really stand out to me. If the Cardinals make the playoffs, I think he might very well win the MVP through mid-May. So on May 15th, he went 0-4 for 4 with two strikeouts, dropping his season batting line to 140, 286, 272. That's a 558 OPS, which is basically what Chris Davis has done the full season, and he is gotten many articles written about how he is on pace for one of the worst seasons of all time. But Carpenter's underlying numbers were still promising. He was hitting the ball hard just into a lot of unlucky outs. Since then, he's hitting 319, 424, 690. That's an OPS over 1,100, and he has 31 homers in just three calendar months. So that's basically a season's worth of production suppressed into half the season for Carpenter, who essentially seems like he's hitting a home run every other day at this point. And what's so impressive about it, I think, is now he's actually leading the National League in a number of statistics, like war. Uh, He's up there in home runs, like you said. And to be able to 
not only rebound and produce impressive statistics over a couple months, but to be so overwhelmingly dominant that he compensates for such a you know a derelict first month and a half and has been one of the more impressive in-season turnarounds I can remember. Okay, that that sells me a little bit on on him as an MVP candidate. What I find most impressive, like I've wanted to write the the how the hell is Matt Carpenter leading the league in home runs uh, article, but I don't have a good answer. Like I'm just looking at it, you look at the the trajectory of his career, and it's interesting how his batted ball profile in terms of line drive rate or, or uh, ground ball to fly ball ratio is the the place where you see this the most. As he's moved from second base to third base to first base, moving down the defensive spectrum, his approach or at least his hitting results have changed. Like he used to be like a high average, high OBP back control guy, and now he's turned into a real you know pull happy, get the ball in the air slugger, over, not just this year, but over the past two or three years. And it's interesting to see that as he's aged and moved, you know, he went from hitting like a stereotypical second baseman to hitting like a third baseman. Now he's hitting like a first baseman. That's just very interesting. Well, he has the lowest ground ball rate among all qualified hitters and second lowest is Joey Gallo. So if you kind of hit the ball in the same fashion that Joey Gallo does without the Gallo strikeouts, that's a, a pretty dominant profile. He also, despite hitting the ball in the air so much, he, I think, has now the third lowest infield fly ball rate of anyone. So when he makes contact, not only is it not going on the ground, but it's at least going to the outfield. And even if the ball isn't traveling quite as far as it did last year, that leads to a lot of doubles, that leads to a lot of home runs, and it even adds marginal value. Like, he doesn't ground into double plays, which helps... At, at the margins Literally as well. Literally this year. He has not grounded into a double play this ah, year. That's fascinating. And I think we talk a lot about how you know the home runs are, are impressive, but not hitting into double plays, not hitting infield fly balls, like those are automatic outs. So that's essentially even allowing him to overperform his strikeout rate. Hearing Joey Gallo and Matt Carpenter in the same sentence is pretty funny because Joey Gallo's eaten meals that weigh more than Matt Carpenter does. Um so let's talk let's talk about Harrison Bader. So he's leading all National League rookies in war, at least when I looked at the stats on Monday. He was in the top 10 among NL position players in B war. And I think a lot of that is just fluky. Like he uh baseball references defensive metrics think he's Tris Speaker. You know, he's about a two-win player just based on his glove in about a half season's worth of playing time. And I think that, you know, I'm willing to believe that the Bader is an above average defender, or even a good defender in center. I don't think he's this good. I don't think he's as good as the numbers make it make him out to be. But at the same time, like he's providing so much value, even apart from his defense, you know, his, his OBP is 349. He has 12 stolen bases, nine home runs uh, in 293 plate appearances, 115 OPS plus you like you'll anybody will take that from their center fielder. So I'm interested, like he's, He's one of those guys like Carpenter, like Paul DeYoung, who was a, a second day or second or third day college pick who was a good college player, but not really a great prospect and is developed into an, an, at least a, an average to above average big leaguer in the Cardinal system. And I think, you know, he's got more athleticism than uh, than either DeYoung or Carpenter, uh, just based on his center field defense and his, his stolen base totals. But just looking at his numbers, it's it's kind of difficult to figure out where I think he's going to end up because so here's what I did and I'm going to read from a play index search on the air which I know is is uh, uh, really compelling radio but I looked at 
at his numbers and I said, this looks like rookie Odubel Herrera. And so I ran a, a pair of play index searches for rookies age 23 or, uh, or older who played more than a third of their games in center field, 330 OBP, OPS plus over 100, at least 200 plate appearances in at least 30% of their games in center, and a strikeout rate between 20 and 30% because Bader's strikeout rate uh, is a little concerning to me. And here are the, the comps I got back. Odubel Herrera is in that, in that range, as is Austin Jackson, Jock Peterson, Danny Santana, Junior Lake, and Brian Peterson uh, since 2007. So that's like that's a really fascinating set of comps to me. Well, I think that that list certainly speaks to what you wrote in your article recently when you were comparing Juan Soto and Ronald Acuna and mentioned that Bader leads all rookies in war, both Fangraphs and Baseball Reference, but I don't think anybody would be taking the rest of his career over Acuna's or Soto's or even like Glaber Torres's. I think defensive metrics in general have been sort of a question mark for a lot of analysts this year, especially at the extremes. Like I wrote a lot about Manny Machado's concerning shortstop metrics, and he's been a lot better with the Dodgers. So I think there's a number of question marks about the public-facing defensive metrics and how accurately they portray defense, but also exactly what they're measuring. Are they measuring defensive ability? Are they measuring position, etc.? I think with Bader, I'm a little less concerned about those just because across all public-facing metrics, he performs well. He leads the all major leaguers in uh, UZR, which is Fangraph's defensive stat. He's second in outs above average, which is StatCast's defensive metric for outfielders. So I think at the very least, we know he's one of the best outfielders in the league. We don't necessarily know why that is, whether it's because of something the Cardinals do with positioning or if he just reads the ball really well or is very fast or has good instincts or what, I think that gives him at the very least a pretty high floor going forward. I think in addition to maybe there was turmoil in the clubhouse with Tommy Pham, the emergence of Bader allowed Pham to be expendable at the deadline when St. Louis traded him to Tampa Bay. But I think, like you, the strikeout rate concerns me a little, and I'm not sure how much the bat will help him in the future. But... If he keeps defending like this, like what that gives him a floor of Kevin Kiermeyer, and that's one of the most underrated, valuable players in the majors. I think the Kevin Kiermeyer defensive comp is still really, really aggressive, just based on how because Kiermeyer is so good. Somebody like him or Jackie Bradley, you know, like I I need more than more than how many innings has he played in center field? Three hundred innings in center field this season to really believe in that. I think you know I'll concede that the glove is good. Um, I don't know how much more beyond that, but I, I would almost go to in the opposite direction. Like the the amount of things that he does well uh, really encourages me. Like he, you know, he's not Joey Votto, but he walks a fair amount. He hits for some power. He's you know he'll steal some bases, um, and the ability to play center field is is huge. The big thing there are two things, not just the strikeout rate because the strikeout rate is livable, um, but he can't really afford uh, for it to get much worse than that, uh, which is a possibility, you know, as, as he gets more exposed to the league. The other thing that, that uh, really worries me is his 380 Babbitt. And as a guy, you know, as a fast guy, um, you know, he's going to have a higher Babbitt, but Austin Jackson is on that, that uh, list of comps for a reason. And Bader hits a lot of balls on the ground too, which will, which will goose his Babbitt a little bit. But Austin Jackson being on that list of comps, you remember his his five win rookie season when his BABIP was close to four hundred. It was one of the 
flukiest batted ball seasons uh, in Major League history. And Bader can live with striking out 29% of the time if he's hitting 280. But if he's only hitting 280 because every ball that comes off his bat is falling into play, regardless of whether uh, whether or not he hits it all that hard, like that's that screams regression to me. And I think the question is not whether he'll regress due to BABIP or defensive ratings evening out or both, some combination of the two. It's how much and how, and what he does to adjust going forward. So I think he's one of the most interesting players in the National League to me, just because of how good he's been, but how uncertain all of, you know, sort of the a lot of the underlying aspects of that performance have been. But at the at the very least, I mean, he's been either a three or four win player, depending on if you look at baseball reference or fan graphs. And this is for a guy who was never a top 100 prospect. He had 92 career plate appearances entering the year and was bad over those 92 plate appearances. So I think he has not only provided some value, but been maybe the Cardinal's second best player this year, mm-hmm. in even in his limited playing time. And that sort of speaks to this broader idea of what we were talking about which is the Cardinals just have depth at basically every position. They're trotting out a league average hitter, and these players add value in other areas, Bader with his defense, for instance. So I think that's how the Cardinals have reentered this race, is just by relying on these surprise performances and being able to have replacements for when Tommy Pham goes into a slump and then gets traded, they can put in someone who's a better version right in center field and take his lineup spot. Right. And just to be clear, like, I think he's going to be a useful big leaguer no matter what. I have a hard time seeing a scenario in which he he's out of the league in three or four years. But the question with all the, you know, how good a defender is he? What, you know, what does his strikeout rate turn into? What does his BABIP turn into? That's the difference between is he, uh, you know, a fourth outfielder you can get by with starting him? Uh, if you're, the rest of your team is good, sort of like a one and a half win player type, or is he a defensive specialist who is streaky at the plate like Bradley, or is he Kiermaier, or is he Odubel Herrera, or is he something even better? I think all of those outcomes are still on the table. There's just so much uncertainty about where these all these moving parts with his game end up. It's going to be fun regardless in like 20 years when we're talking about how Acuna and Soto are being inducted into the Hall of Fame and we remember that they weren't even the best rookies in their league Every, in their rookie everybody's year. Everybody's I love guys like that. Uh, I, I love those fluky rookie of the year seasons. Like, you know, Wade Miley almost beat Bryce Harper for rookie of the year that one year. So I, I think at the very least, I mean, that'll he'll be a fun trivia point no matter how his career ends up. And like you, I'm a little more encouraged about the direction that will go over the ensuing years. So last question, Cardinals in or out of the playoffs by the end of the season. What do you think? I will say out just because I think this is kind of a cop-out answer. There are so many teams involved right now that for almost all of them, they have less than a coin flip chance just based on the competition. And I, I am a little concerned that their schedule over the remaining way and the fact that a lot of their pitchers haven't necessarily thrown these innings loads in the past before, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised. I was just looking at the standings page this morning and seeing all those teams tied for a playoff spot is beautiful. There's, I've written this for a couple of years at the All-Star break now. There's nothing that I want more than a bunch of playing games to get to the playoffs because I think sudden death baseball is one of the more exciting aspects of the entire sports world. So... I'm hoping for a three or four way tie at, at the back of the NL playoff picture. Yeah, I'm just looking at at the playoff picture, and 
I don't know who I'm real like in the entire National League. I don't know who I'm really confident about being in by the end of the season, except for the Cubs. The Cubs are are far enough out in front that they've got a little bit of a cushion, but everything else is just completely up in the air. I I don't know. I I look at the way the Phillies have played over the uh, over the past couple weeks and the Rockies. I don't know what it's going to take to convince me that that they're for real, but I, you know, the Cardinals just seem like a team that they could just be above average, you know, in typical Cardinals fashion, just sort of above average themselves, not make any mistakes, and wind up with one of the wild card spots. So, I I think gun to my head right now, I, I say they get in, but it's going to be close either way. And then I have absolutely no idea who pitches the wild card game for them. Oh, so man. that'll that'll be a conversation for another day. Maybe maybe Carlos Martinez in his bullpen role. Maybe he just starts and, and goes two innings and then they sort of figure it out from there. But I mean, with if that happens or if they get stuck in a playoff uh situation, I I am uh very excited to talk about them again. And uh, you know, it's occasionally we it's, you know, one of these teams like this just goes under the radar, and I realize we hadn't talked about the Cardinals in a while, so Thank you for for coming on and uh, and indulging that. Thank you. Poor Mike Matheny. Thanks to Zach Cram. And we'll be right back with Mark Titus after this. Whether you're sore from a game of pickup soccer or haven't played sports in years, Mattress Firm has a mattress for every body and every budget. If you're not getting enough great sleep and would like to score big with a mattress upgrade, Mattress Firm is here for you. Mattress Firm has more than 3,000 stores nationwide, so there are no roadblocks when it comes to finding a perfect bed at the perfect price. And they'll deliver it to you on the same or next day for free. Talk about delivering in the clutch. They're like if pro baseball's best closer took the form of a mattress. And you can even sleep on it for 120 nights to make sure it fits like a glove. Mattress Firm has the perfect game plan in place to ensure that you get the best mattress for your body and your budget. Right now, when you use the code PODCAST10 at mattressfirm.com slash podcast, you can take an additional 10% off already low prices. Head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and take 10% off today and start sleeping better tomorrow. So with the Major League Pennant race in full swing, uh, the baseball world is once again consumed by the exploits of a bunch of preteens in pencil tucky. Uh, and I realized that I hadn't really been following the Little League World Series that closely. But one man who has is ringer writer and host of One Shining Podcast and uh, Chicago State head basketball coach candidate Mark Titus, who joins me on the line making his his Ringer MLB show debut today. So, Mark, you wrote about the Little League World Series, and you got to tell me what's going on. Okay, where do we start? Um, So, the umpires, as you might imagine, are terrible. They are probably... They're like two stories. It's always not about what's going on like with the players. You always, like, as a good journalist, you got to find the story outside of the stories and stuff. Uh, So, like, the two stories have nothing to do with the players winning and losing and all that is the, the... I, I the umpiring is unbelievable. Like any pitch that it, I, I wrote this in my article, but I, I swear to God, it's true. Any pitch that like a catcher actually catches, the umpire just calls it a strike. It's like mm-hmm. if if the catcher caught it, it must have been a good enough pitch. So I'm gonna say strike on this one because all these guys are volunteers. Um, every single one of these vol- uh, umpires are just volunteers that work at their local little league, and they're just like, hey, I'll sign up to do the World Series. So that's one thing. Number two, they've tried to uh, over the years. What's happened to Little League World Series is like. The kids that hit puberty before everyone else will hit home runs just accidentally. They'll get jammed mm-hmm. and it'll hit off the handle and it'll still go 250 feet over the fence. Um, so they tried to to fix that and they they made these new bats that are supposed to they're metal bats, but they're supposed to be more like wood bats. 
and which is another way to say they have like no pop whatsoever. Yeah, so, college baseball made that switch a few years ago. Yeah, all the home runs are taken out of the game, which is like part of the fun is watching these like six foot two guys just like bombing home runs that are that just like go on forever, and it's so funny to see. Um, those are the two things going on like ancillary wise. Otherwise, the action has been incredible. There've been a ton of walk off games. Um, I absolutely love it. I don't really know how to sum it up other than just like it's it, you have no idea what's going to happen and it's the, the game is never over because any there there could always be like five errors on one play that and, and a team scores like six runs on one play and you're like how is that even possible weren't there only three guys on base it's like yeah it happened i don't know <laughs> they threw it into the stand so we gave him an extra run um and that's kind of that's kind of how it works it's that's why it's fun and there's never any middle ground it's either just total chaos or just complete pitcher dominance where they're getting you know like the yeah. um the Monet Davis shutout a couple years ago, or, or Danny Almonte, or, or uh, Walker Kelly, or whoever you know, you you hear these pitchers' names and they're getting called strikes eighteen inches off the plate, which is not as bad as it sounds because these kids are all like, you know, they're five foot seven, they can reach into the other batter's box anyway. So it's, but it is still, it's very clear why these kids are all about to move to a sixty foot mound. Yeah, it's the 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 domination though. What's funny about that is like even their they now have like the pitch counts, like the hard pitch counts, um, which they put in a couple years ago, I think, uh, where you're seeing it all the time in these games where the guy like a guy's got like a no hitter going or like a one hitter, maybe he's given up two hits, um, and a shutout just completely dominating everybody, and then he hits his pitch limit and they got to take him out, and like the coach comes out to take him out and he's like. Crap! I didn't really have a backup plan. It's like it's <laughs> it's the the bottom of the fifth inning or something, and which and they only play six innings, so it's you know there, there's there's four outs to go basically, and he's got to pull out a guy who's got a one hitter going, and he's like, crap, what do I do now? <laughs> and then the other team starts scoring runs, and it's awesome. That's what I mean. Like the game is never really over. You think you think you have an idea of like where this game is headed. A team will score like five runs in the top of the first, and you're like, oh well, this team's gonna blow them out, and then it never actually works that way. So, and it's it's fun to see that happened to like these kids are 30 times better than anybody we played little league with. And Mm -hmm. even a team that makes it to the little league world series, like sometimes they just run out of kids who can pitch and it's, it's funny. I mean, it's not funny, I guess to the the kids who are going through that, but it is sort of like there are moments when, when it's fun to see athletes fail in ways that are uh, familiar to fail is probably not the right word, but you know, like, okay, you know, I've done that on a basketball court or a golf course or something. And, and, all the more so for for kids who are just playing on this stage for the first time. Well, if you want to put the positive spin on it, you would say this, that it's it's great because it emphasizes the whole teamwork idea. And this is if the Little League World Series is nothing if not trying to to highlight these virtues of teamwork and togetherness and and you're only as strong as your weakest link. Like all the players have to take an at bat as well. That's like another rule they have. So you, you could look at it that way and say, we're celebrating this because you can't just be a team that has like one guy that hit puberty before everyone else who's got a cannon and is just like throwing smoke past all these little kids. Um, because if, if that's the case, even if that guy can throw one complete game, he, he now cannot pitch in the next game and you, you have to keep winning. And so it really does become like a team thing. And that's kind of cool, I suppose. So there's that element, but yeah, sometimes the failure is fun. And I, I wrote this in my article too, that like, I enjoy watching the failure because you can like see the wheels turning in the kids' heads. It like, it feels like my life is over, but then you always mm-hmm. have the adult that comes over and throws their arm around them and kind of talks to them. And then you kind of like see them wiping their tears and they're slowly like learning these lessons about life. And like, sometimes you don't always win. Sometimes you have to go through adversity. Sometimes life is not fair. And 
um, that's cool too. I just become like a big sucker, man. Like I, I don't know. I, I, I'm getting older, so I'm more comfortable with like who I'm becoming. But like, I remember when I was really into the League World Series when I was like 24, and I felt like the biggest lame nerd on the earth. That like I was crying almost watching these kids play. I was like, oh my god, what is happening to me? <laughs> well, it like the bring up the the adults. Like I, I covered uh, a Little League World Series game in 2014, and that was what struck me is like there was so much media hoopla and so you know so many people there and it just seemed like this should be so much bigger than these these kids should be able to handle and i think to some extent like they just don't some of them just don't know better than to than to ignore it like they you know they don't know enough to be to be freaked out by it but the you know for all the horror stories you hear about youth coaches like the the coaches who get to this level tend to be like they tend to be really good. They tend to be really good at protecting their kids and, and making sure that everybody keeps perspective. And that's, you know, that's always um, something that, that's uh, stuck out to me. So what, what from, from the 2018 edition has, has, yeah. uh, have been players or, or storylines that you've enjoyed following? Okay. I'll give you some things to watch. Um, so I think the best player in the Little League World Series is a kid from Michigan named Jaron Purify. He plays third base for him. I think he sometimes pitches name. for him. And I, I'm, I'm already, I know, I'm already out of the gate. Like, I have way too much detail than you probably wanted. But I, when I say I obsess over this, I really mean it. Um, so this kid is like, he, he, they, they say every time he hits the ball, like they keep making this comment that every time he hits the ball, he's trying to get a double, even if he's just like grounding it to the shortstop because he runs so hard and so fast and he's such a great athlete. Um, Michigan has a really good team because, mostly because of him, but they also got some good players around him, but they're not the best team. I think the best team is Hawaii, and they have this kid, Sean Yamaguchi, who uh, is just like everything you want out of a little league player. Like he, Every time he gets a hit, he finds the camera, and he winks at him and gives him a thumbs up and the little mahalo shocker, whatever the hand signal is with the pinky and the thumb out. Um, he's doing that a lot. Uh, he comes in, like he doesn't really pitch a ton, but like when he does pitch, he came in, the last game he pitched, um, he comes in in the sixth inning, and his team was, they were up like eight to one, and the lead was getting cut to eight to three. And they the, the other team had some guys on base, and so the the coach brings in Sean Yamaguchi, and he's like, he's like, snuff out this fire. The kid throws three pitches, gets the strikeout, and into the game, and just kind of like shrugs his shoulders and walks off. Uh, he, he's pretty awesome. So I think Hawaii is the best team on the U.S. side um, with Yamaguchi leading them. But I think the best player is the kid from Michigan. And then on the other side, the international side, Japan, who is just like a force and seems to win this thing like all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a typical team where they're just like. They've like militarized Little League Baseball almost. Like you watch these guys play and you're like, my God, that is like a well-oiled machine. They're like the the, the German... Maybe it's not a great comparison with this World Cup because Germany sucked, but they're like the German yeah. soccer team where it's just like it doesn't matter who's playing for them. They're great. Um, so they're really good. But South Korea's got a good team too. So those are the those are the things to look for. There was there was one Japanese town, like like somewhere I feel like in in the Tokyo suburbs, but I could be wrong, that sent like three teams to Williamsport to the and like won the international bracket like three times in eight years or something like that. Like they, the oh, first I think team it was, I think it was even better than that. I think they like, if I remember, I think they like won the whole thing like three times in eight, like five or six years or something. Um, if I remember right, I think a team from Japan has won like five of the last eight. Just any team from Japan has won the whole damn thing. Five of the last eight years. So uh, yeah, Japan is, Japan's really good. Yeah, it always seems like like Japan come comes out of the uh, the international bracket. The other comment I would say about Japan is like they're all and talking about like how they stylistically have this like well oiled machine. 
what's fun about watching them is that they all like are trying to basically be Ichiro. And that's pretty cool because like every other team has like, and, and every other team's cool too because they have the variety and like different kids can do different things. All this. Japan, it feels like every single kid plays the exact same way because they were coached the exact same way because like they've, they've run the numbers. They've watched every ounce of film that exists and they're like, this is the way to play baseball. This is how we're going to teach you to play baseball. This is how it's done. And like every single one of them is like, cool, I'll perfect this way. And they just all play the same way and are so fun to watch. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's it. I would I would give a shout out. The one other comment I'd say is shout out to the Houston Texas team. They were really I thought they were really really good. They're now out of the tournament. They uh last night they were eliminated on a a tag up in the bottom of the ninth where uh the guy caught the right fielder caught the ball and the ump was basically in his way as he tried to throw oh, it. Oh, I saw home. this clip, yeah. And yeah. Yeah, and they had a really good team. And then the way they lost their first game even was on like a a bush league strike like a guy was up to they were they were down by I want to say one run. Um, in the bottom of the sixth, or maybe it was the top, of the, in the sixth inning, whatever. They're down by one run with two outs. They have a, a, a the hitter is up, um, ready to like maybe hit the home run. They win the game. Who knows what's about to happen? Uh, and the kid strikes out on a fastball that the catcher had to turn his glove, um, and to catch to basically like scoop it off the ground. <laughs> and that's how they lost their first game. It was like the ump was like, yeah, good enough for me. The catcher caught it. You're out. That's a bad the kid's beat. like, what? He he scooped it off the ground. <laughs> If anything, this makes me appreciate big league umpires because, like this, this relative speed and distance. I mean, that's something that the ESPN yeah. broadcast loves to do. It's like this is the same reaction time as a hundred and four mile an hour fastball. So that's like it's kind of a you know I agree with you. The umpiring is brutal, but it, it's a, a tough job for for volunteers. Well, to it, do. it highlights the idea that when you're watching major league games and you're like Joe West is the absolute worst. I could do so much better than Joe West. And then you watch the guys in Little League. The, the Little League umps kind of represent the everyman. You and I watching on our couch saying we could be better than Joe S. And then you realize, maybe I couldn't. Maybe it's actually kind of hard to see a ball coming in that fast that's moving and trying to... I don't I don't know how umps do it. I will I will defend them in that regard. Like I Every time I go to a Major League game in person and I watch the ball, I'm like, oh my God, I have no idea even what kind of pitch that was, let alone if it <laughs> was in the zone or anything else like that. So I don't know how they do it, but uh, that said... They could do better. <laughs> yeah, probably. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Mark. It's uh, been illuminating. I'm I'm glad that I just realized that like I had no idea what was going on. So I'm glad that you've been paying attention and uh, it's okay. We're, we're kind enough to to let me in on some of the things you've learned. So thanks for coming on. I want to I want to also oh yeah I want to also say that I do follow MLB. Uh, I I'm a big Cubs fan, but I also follow baseball as a whole, and I feel like that needs to be said because um, there's this this narrative from maybe certain people at certain companies, certain uh, uh, multimedia companies, bosses of certain companies that are putting this narrative that baseball is boring and dying and this and that. And I just wanted to comment that this is not true from my stance. I I love baseball. I I watch baseball religiously throughout the summer. Um, I'm very much a baseball fan. So uh, it was a pleasure talking baseball with you. All right. Well, it's a pleasure having you on. Thanks for for, uh, coming on. Thanks again to Mark Titus. We'll be right back with Ben Lindbergh in a moment. Support for today's episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. You get in a crash, people could get hurt or killed. But let's take a moment to look at some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the past three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. 
Drunk driving can have a big impact on your wallet too. You could get arrested, incur huge legal expenses, or even lose your job. So what can you do to prevent drunk driving? Plan a safe ride home before you start drinking, designate a sober driver, or call a taxi. If someone you know has been drinking, take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but one thing's for sure, you're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. Learn more at nitsa.gov. That's N-H-T-S-A dot G-O-V. And now, after that brisk discussion of the Little League World Series, we return to grown-up baseball with the most grown-up member of the Ringer MLB show crew, Ben Lindbergh. Ben. Is that a way of calling me old? I guess I am compared I, to Graham. I think you are the oldest. <laughs> maybe so. I've only got, what, a couple months on you, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to really enjoy those couple months because... <laughs> Yeah, Every day brings us closer to death, Ben. That's true. Uh, every day also brings us closer to the conclusion of a, I guess we'll call surprisingly spirited National League pennant race in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. You wrote before the season about uh, the effect of tanking on on uh, the quality of baseball's pennant races. And the you know, this was something that we're not the only people who have talked about it, but the idea that if you're either going for a title or trying to bottom out, there is no middle class. There is no surprising contending team. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, certainly to me, it seemed like all six division races were preordained before the season. And yep. uh, at least one of those teams, the nationals that I thought was a heavy favorite is going to wind up missing the playoffs altogether in all likelihood. But here we are. And uh, there are so many teams within. I think it's eight teams within six games of the yeah. top, of the top of the National League standings. We have uh, very close races, tied races for the American League West, and the Yankees are right in there for one of the wild card spots. So, what happened? I guess <laughs> like it. If this feels like a, a good time before we get too close to the end of the season to sort of take stock of of how we got this so wrong. Yeah, and all eight of those teams have at least a 10% chance of winning a wild card according to FanCrafts this morning. So And it's that's pretty and incredible. that's not counting that's not counting the Nationals and the Pirates and the um and the Giants who were really mm-hmm. in this yeah. up until about a week ago. Yeah. So this was a common discussion point coming into the season in spring training. There were people like Bill Shaken of the LA Times who's a good reporter who was saying, you know, spring training opens in 2 weeks and hope and faith is dead all across America. And I wrote something about it at the time saying that, you know, there's really no evidence that we've seen less competitiveness to this point that even though people have been talking about the tanking, that we've seen pretty good races in the past. But even I agreed that things looked pretty stratified coming into this year, and you really did seem to have these super teams that were bringing back basically their entire rosters from last season. And so I was sort of sounding a cautionary note and saying, well, it hasn't really materialized to this point. Plus, this is probably just a temporary state of affairs. We won't always have these super teams and these tanking teams. But even I thought, yeah, these division races are probably kind of over even before the season started. And here we are. I think a lot of it really does just come down to kind of the basic, that's why they play the games refrain, which, you know, is sort of the the thing that crotchety columnists will say about the projections every spring. But there really is some truth to it this year because you have some teams that are really far exceeding not only their expectations coming into the season, 
But their expectations right now, given how well they've actually played, like you have the Mariners, of course, who right now are beating their base runs record. That's a a Fangraph's way of accounting for what a team's expected record should be based on its underlying performance. The Mariners have exceeded their base runs record by 10 games, the Rockies by six games, the A's by four games, the Phillies by four games, the Brewers by three games. Then on the other end of the leaderboard, the teams that have underperformed, you've got the Dodgers eight games below where they quote unquote should be, the Nationals five games below, the Astros four games below. And so you end up with some really great races. We basically, with six weeks or so left to go in the season, have two playoff spots decided, maybe? AL East and AL Central champions. It looks like the Red Sox and the Indians have those locked up. Otherwise, you have eight out of the 10 races that are totally up in the air. And a lot of it really does kind of come down to randomness and the fact that we just really can't predict baseball, which is what John Sterling always says. And we mock it and we make fun of it, but there is some truth to it. I would say there's not only truth to that. That's like kind of the whole point Mm -hmm. that... Just to compare baseball to basketball, for instance, which tends to be uh, at times, you know, it's it's exciting, but it, it can be really deterministic. And yeah, you know, what you brought up about teams, specifically this teams outperforming not only their expectations but uh, the way they they would appear to have actually played. You yeah, know, the you brought up the Phillies, but you the uh the Rockies right now are two games up on the Dodgers and the Dodgers have a 123 run <laughs> yeah. edge on them and run differential right. the which Rockies is bigger have been than outscored this season. Yeah, it's the it's bigger than the difference between the Rockies and the Padres mm-hmm. and the the difference between uh the Astros and the Mariners which is a three and a half game lead in the standings uh is about the same size as the difference between the Red Sox and the Twins. Yeah. Uh in terms of run differential and I can't do math that big in my head to figure out how far back the twins are from the Red Sox. Yeah. But we want to look at these individual events and sort of find a pattern. And that's the pattern that jumps out to me. But I hesitate to call it that because I don't know how that could be systemic unless it comes out 18 months from now that that the Phillies, the Rockies, the Mariners and the um, uh, and the Brewers all had some sort of way to hack run differential right. that, that we find out about later. There's no evidence that this is anything but a series of similar looking uh, unusual events happening at the same time. Yeah. And we have that conversation every time there is a team that manages to outperform. And you couldn't have this podcast if we didn't have this conversation every <laughs> right. two months or so. Yeah. I mean, the Mariners are historic even by the standards of that type of team, I think. But we've had this conversation, you know, 2012 Orioles and 2016 Rangers. There are all these teams that you think of that managed to do that for a full season. And every time the conversation is, well, have they cracked the code? Have they figured out a way to do this sustainably? And the answer is seemingly always no, because even if they manage to do it for a full season, they generally don't manage to do it the very next season with most of the same people in place. So I don't think there's- Or if they do something about it, changes. Like, yeah, the, you know, the right. Rangers uh, had that, I might be getting the the years back, but they they had, did they have the, the, the crazy run differential the year that Darvish came back or the year that he sat out with- I don't Tommy remember. John. They had the the really terrible injury year, the historic. Right. That was 2014. Right. And then, oh, no, I think that's, I might have it back. That's continued but- even since. But I think that it's just really hard to figure. Even when you look at just the AL West race, for instance, 
You have the Mariners with this historically great record in one-run games and two-run games. And then you have the A's who have been just total shutdown team in the late innings. Like they've outscored their opponents by many, many runs in the late innings and I think been outscored for the first five innings of games. So they just haven't blown any leads. And you can say, well, these teams have good bullpens and you've got Edwin Diaz pitching every other day for the Mariners and he's really good. And the A's, even though they don't have big names in the bullpen necessarily, they've got a bunch of really great relievers out there. But then you look at the Astros who have blown a bunch of leads lately. That's really the difference. I think over their last stretch of games, like in their last 22 games, I think they've gone 8-14. and But they've outscored their opponents even over that stretch. Even when they're losing, they are still seemingly doing the things that generally lead to winning. And they've blown games like they've had, you know, Colin McHugh come in and give up a three-run homer to Robinson Cano. And Colin McHugh's been fantastic this year. And Ryan Presley, and you could go down the list. The Astros, by many of the metrics, have maybe the best bullpen in baseball this year or one of the best. And yet in high leverage spots where the Mariners relievers and the A's relievers have really excelled, the Astros relievers have come up short of what they've done in other situations. So basically it comes down to clutchness versus unclutchness. And we've litigated that discussion countless times too, but I just don't really believe there is something inherently unclutch about the Astros bullpen or clutch about the A's bullpen. It's just one of those things. Yeah. And just to bring it, Zachary Levine, our, our friend, uh, former baseball prospectus writer mm-hmm. and, and Astros beat writer brought up the, uh, the idea of the Astros bullpen being bad and, you know, just McHugh specifically, uh, three of the 10 earned runs he's allowed all season came on that one home run Monday <laughs> right. night. And the Astros have the second or the second lowest uh, bullpen ERA in baseball. Yeah. So like that makes it kind of frustrating, you know, if you're Jeff Lunau, because mm-hmm. how do you improve that? Like, right. I mean, they went out and got, I guess we know how you, how you try to do it. Yeah. Like, what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to, in so many words, predict baseball? Yeah, no, there's really no solution for this. And it probably is frustrating for a a team like the Astros, except that they pay attention to the probabilities and they know that there is some percentage of the simulations, I guess, where things just don't shake out your way. And you hope that that's not the actual simulation that turns into real life. And so... You don't really think that's comforting. No, that, probably not. <laughs> like, that, I know that flies like you and I know that and their decision sciences right. department knows no, that. I'm sure but it's like, still frustrating. You can't take that to the public. Yes. Yeah. I, I have lost some pity perhaps for Jeff Luno and the Astros with their recent uh, press releases and Absolutely. actions, but yeah. I am sure they are feeling that. And so you do get this weird season where- There are super teams and there are truly terrible teams. So you have the Red Sox who are playing at a 113 win pace and you have the Orioles who are playing at a 48 win pace. And so to some extent, what everyone was saying coming into the season is true. There are super teams and bad teams. But I think, you know, of the what the great seven teams that people were identifying as the super teams coming into the season, the Red Sox were like the least of those teams. I think they were barely in the club. Yeah. Yeah. I forget where I had them in my preseason power rankings, but I don't think it was within the top five. No, I think, yeah, I had them as a wildcard team. And so they're the one that has gone on this run that I think maybe we expected 
the Astros to go on or the Indians or the Dodgers or one of these teams that seemed like the the real cream of the crop. So you do have this enormous, enormous separation between, say, the best team in the AL and the worst team in the AL, but that just hasn't translated to bad races, really. And I think that's kind of the key. Like, you can have a bunch of great teams and a bunch of bad teams, but you can still end up with some really good races, just the way that the divisions shake out. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And in the NL with the wildcard race, I have no idea what's going to happen. I, I guess at this point, you'd have to say that maybe the Brewers and the Cardinals are the most likely to come out of this crop. I think I had the Cardinals as a wildcard team coming into the year, and they really looked out of it as recently as the deadline. And now they're very much in it again, if not favorite for that spot. So there's so much weirdness going on. And the Nationals, of course, are just as weird in a different direction, I think, as as the Astros are. And I mean, this is the beauty of baseball, I guess, not to just say something that we say every season about the sport, but you would think 162 games would be enough to separate the truly good teams from the truly not as good teams. And yet it's not. Part of the thing, like, let's say that that we were right, that there were seven super teams uh, at the beginning of the season. And, you know, I th- think the Astros and, and Yankees are still like they they're made to look worse than they actually are based on their position in the standings. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Indians aren't that good, but that division is just yeah. so terrible. They're going to get away with everything. But like. Out of the Nationals fell through the floor. The Dodgers fell back to the pack. The Cubs are not way out in front in their division. They're still within a, a hot weekend of being caught by the Brewers or the Cardinals. But let's say that that all of those teams, seven or eight teams, had made it, you know, had had uh, gone on to upper nineties win seasons. There are ten playoff spots, so yeah. you're going to get playoff races. It's staggering to me how highly concentrated the top talent in baseball is among the top few teams Mm -hmm. because you know we were looking at the uh at the trade deadline like who's the big name that was going to be moved there there weren't really a lot of superstar type players on bad teams that that could get moved Mm -hmm. but even then there are just too many playoff spots for all of the the fluky or surprising or or cinderella teams to get shut out completely and then you take for any number of of so-called super teams you're going to have one Nationals and and one Astros and and one Dodgers, and some of them are going to fall back to the pack and get overtaken by you know, by surprising teams. Mm-hmm. And this is the the race being this crowded right now. Like that doesn't get me out of my seat. Like if if we're still coming down to the wire with three or four teams in a in line for a wild card spot or two or three of the divisions still uh, hanging in the balance the last week of the season, I you know it's we don't have that all that often anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think we've just got so many teams that are in it now that even if the Phillies fall off the off the pace and the Mariners fall off the pace, we're still going to have very crowded playoff races going into September. Yeah, and people are playing out the really wacky tiebreaker scenarios and what would happen if you end up with a five-way tie or something for the- You see the, the Joel Sherman tweet yes, the other day? Yeah, you could come up with records for all of these teams where you could get them somewhat realistically to end up tied at the end of the season. I don't know what would happen from a scheduling perspective. That would just be Armageddon because you have that wildcard game that I think is scheduled to be like, what, the, the day before the rest of the playoffs start. So I don't know what would happen there. But 
you would think, as you're saying, like, yeah, you've got eight teams that are very much in this at least right now. So even if a a few are kind of fluky and fall out of the race over the next month or so, you're going to end up with some teams that are still very much fighting for this spot, I would think, at the end of the season. And you're right. I mean, even last year, when I think, for the most part, the teams that won the divisions were the teams we thought would win the divisions, there were still surprises. There were still the Twins who had had the worst record in baseball the previous year. And they, I think, became the first team ever to qualify for the postseason after a 100-loss season. And then you had the Rockies and the Diamondbacks both winning wild cards and the Giants collapsing and the Yankees, who, of course, are not the typical underdog ever, but they were still a surprise team last year and they came within one win of the World Series. And then you had the Brewers neck and neck with the Cubs almost the entire season. So... There are always reasons to watch, I think, even when it seems as if everything is just sealed up from the start. And I think the way that things have worked out this year, there is an element of serendipity to it. I think probably if we looked at kind of the expected standings today, just based on run differential and all of the underlying metrics we're talking about here, they probably would look a little closer to what we thought they would be coming into the season. But sabermetricians always say, like, even if you know the true talent of every player and every team down to the second decimal point, you still can't actually predict a team's record except within, you know, seven or eight games just because of the randomness that is inherent to baseball. And even then, like you look at projection systems and I'm an addict to baseball prospectuses playoff odds. So like I recognize I'm part of the problem, but uh, we might be at a part of the season where projection systems like what makes them useful is that they're slower to to adjust than Mm -hmm. just human heuristic uh, uh, decision making. And I think at the beginning of the season or on on a very long timeline that steadiness is a virtue but we're getting to a point this season where i don't know that they have you know they are a better reflection of uh a team's performance than run differential right. or, or record. yeah and i think it really has changed the way that we watch and consume baseball at least people like us to have these projections available year round i mean you can go to fan graphs in the middle of the winter and sure the rosters aren't really complete but you can see what teams are projected to do given the talent that they have under contract and so you never get to the point in spring training where it's like okay who's going to win this year like who's who's the surprise team who's favored because i feel like i know the answer to that question or at least the statistical answer to that question at every point at any day on the calendar I feel like I know who is most likely to get those playoff spots in the upcoming season. And so it feels almost as if there's just no surprise anymore because we always kind of know the most likely outcome. But as we are seeing right now, the most likely outcome is not always the outcome that actually happens. The flip side of like the building super team the, or the the all or nothing approach to team building, you know, tanking to build an Astros or a yeah. Cubs is that not all tanking teams end up looking like the 2011, 12, 13 Astros. Because mm-hmm. in addition to the Boston Red Sox being on pace to win, I don't know the exact number, but you know, they're threatening to win around 110 games. The two worst teams in baseball are very much not tanking. They're probably the two anti-smarmy, blue, <laughs> button-down, shirted, uh, Ivy League, NBA GM uh, front offices. Yeah. The two... To the least, the arguments that. for why you should tank, baby. 
Exactly. Because mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Orioles and the Royals are, I mean, they tried to contend for as long as they possibly mm-hmm. could With and a lot got of success. to the end of the tunnel. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, the Royals won two pennants in the World Series. The Orioles made the playoffs three mm-hmm. times in five years. And, you know, they took their shots and, and it worked in one case and it didn't for in another case, if you only judge it by by postseason success. But I guess like there's a lot of I, the criticisms of tanking are legitimate enough that I don't want to call it concern trolling. But that's the uh, the phrase that stuck in my stuck mm-hmm. in my head. But you don't want to get into a rut like the Padres are in right now. And, and even then, the light seems to be just around the corner yeah. with the, the farm system they have. Or maybe the White Sox might be a better example. But there is no substitute for just going for it until you can't go for it anymore and then just running out of gas mm-hmm. when it comes to building a team that's going to be really bad for a really long yeah. time. So I think that's another thing that gets un- underplayed uh, when we we talk about the way that you know, the so-called smart way to build teams yeah. nowadays. Ideally, you do what teams like the Yankees and the Dodgers try to do and just be good all the time. And even as... I mean, ideally, you spend $220 million right. on payroll <laughs> exactly. every year. Like, I yeah. I certainly wish all 30 <laughs> teams in baseball did that, but... Right, exactly. There aren't that many teams that can actually do that. And you have to be not only more wealthy, than think. I think... But you you have to be really good at player development. You have to keep the next crop of good players coming even as you're winning, which is tough to do because you aren't going to be a a seller and you aren't going to be getting high draft picks. So it's really hard and you can't always do that. And I agree, there were a lot of teams that were being lumped together with the tanking teams this spring just because they were bad, just because they were kind of at the down phase of their competitive cycle. And I think we have to make that distinction between teams that are actively tanking in a new sort of way and teams that are just bad for other reasons, because there have always been teams that are bad. You're always going to have teams that are bad because it's like, a, you know, it's a seesaw and there are some teams that are at the top and there are some teams at the bottom. That's just how it has to work. And even make the distinction between tanking teams and teams that are just deliberately non-competitive like the Marlins or, te- or even teams yeah. like the Rays that are good, but aren't as good as they mm-hmm. could be or by all rights ought to be if they spent more than a mid 2000s NHL team on payroll. But all right. <laughs> yeah. So this has been comprehensive and I'm sure we'll talk about this again in two months, but it's always good to check in and uh, sort of look at the state of baseball. Cause I mean, I don't know, Zach and I talked about the Cardinals earlier, but the national league pennant race is just so complex right now that it like, yes, almost the only way to make sense of it is to sort of zoom out from, uh, and take the 30,000 foot view. So thanks for, for taking that view with me. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. That will do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB show. Thank you to Zach Cram, Mark Titus, and Ben Lindbergh for joining me today. Thanks to Harrison Bader, Jaron Purify, and Colin McHugh, and others for providing stuff for us to talk about. Thanks to Bobby Wagner and Jim Cunningham for stitching today's episode together. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. People could get hurt or killed. You could get arrested and incur huge legal expenses or even lose your job. If you think drunk driving is no big deal, you couldn't be more wrong. Drive sober or get pulled over. Learn more at NHTSA.gov. That's N-H-T-S-A 
www.gov.gov.